Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. Just before we get started, a word from our friends at Future Golf, the official golf club partner of the 19th Tee Podcast. Future Golf is Australia's largest golfing community for younger players, providing access to some of Australia's very best courses. Your membership includes free rounds, over 90 discounted green fees Australia-wide, a free professional lesson, an ex-golf simulator session, and of course, the all-important Golf Australia handicap. The best part, though? definitely the price with packages starting at just $24.95 per month it is the very best value golf membership you'll find plus listeners of this little podcast get a further 10% off with any future golf membership with the promo code the 19th t that's t-h-e-1-9-t-h-t-double-e and what i will say druids is the folks at future golf have been fantastic in the current crisis all current members will have their their full 12 month membership uh, granted, once golf recommences in each of your states, if you're signing up to a new membership at the moment, same deal. If you can't play, say if you're in Victoria and you're jumping on board with a new membership, then you'll have your full 12 months once golf resumes. They've been fantastic in honouring their memberships in the current crisis, so they deserve a big pat on the back, but there's certainly no reason not to jump on board with Future Golf at this point in time and save yourself a bit of cash, the 19th D promo code, that 10% off any new membership. So if you're looking for a place to play without the jacket and tie, Look no further than Future Golf. Head to www.futuregolf.com.au forward slash join. And don't forget to use the 19th T promo code for an extra 10% off. Future Golf, play your way. This is the 19th T podcast. Kieran Marsh and Nathan Drudy back with you for another week. And Drudstar, finally had a little bit of live golf on the television. The match two taken out one up by Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning, but mate, it had a little bit of everything. We had yeah, Phil did. driving short par fours over tree lines. We had Tom Brady holing out from the fairway and splitting his pants in the process. We had TB12 and Peyton hitting inside Tiger on a par three. And ultimately, we had $20 million going to uh, going to charities related to COVID-19. So it may not have been golf as we know, but geez, it was good to have it back on the telly. Absolutely correct. Uh, and that's what I was going to interrupt you to say was how good was it just to see some actual golf and not some, yeah, not replays of, uh, of yesteryear or, or events from uh, earlier this year, but it was excellent. And for me, uh, all it highlighted was that we can mic players up during PGA tour events. Yeah. Still, it wasn't still an advocate fantastic. for it. Oh, well, I mean, I think unfortunately for networks that currently hold the rights, events like this almost back them into a corner, right? Because this is the only live product we're getting at the moment. We see what's possible. Yeah, there's a novelty element to that competition this morning. And yeah, players like Tom Brady currently, Peyton Manning when he was playing, they're used to that sort of access in the NFL. But the quality of of, of content that are produced, and I think credit has to go um, to the producers because let's be honest, the first matchup just between Tiger and Phil was bland. There wasn't much and they went away. They licked their wounds. They learned their lessons. They added in two extra people. They added in a couple of different um, production elements. And, and I think, um, I know a point that you were very strong on a, a new on-course reporter who, who did an Jason. exceptional job and, and credit to them because 
the product of match two was so far beyond what we got out of match one and it was a really entertaining couple of hours of golf yeah it was um and and to your point there jt uh on the microphone was uh fantastic obviously a, a member at, at medalist like like tiger woods but um he provided some some good insight i'd obviously i'd much rather prefer seeing him play but uh it was nice to to have a bit of personality um on the mic on the course but uh look yeah, i agree with you much better than the match one speaking of personality on the mic i think we need to find a way to get charles barkley into regular golf commentary <laughs> and chuck, chuck is great Chuck yeah. just brings, I mean, he, he loves the game, first and foremost. He just brings an element of, I think, relatability yeah. to the average golfer and personality that, you know, many of our um, broadcasting teams, dare we say, are lacking. So I can't see it happening, but maybe the occasional PGA tournament or even a major where Charles Barkley is involved in some way, shape or form, <laughs> I, th- I think couldn't, could, could only be a good thing because he brings something. One thing before we move on, Drew, I, I do want to touch on. I think outside of the, the money that was raised for COVID-related charities out of today's event, for me, the most pleasing thing was the form of Tiger, mm. particularly off the tee. Now, you know, we've spoken about the mic, the mic'd up players. We've spoken about the banter. Realistically, uh, I think Phil... Uh, TB12 and Peyton carried that. It's not Tiger's strength, but that's because irrespective of the stakes, whether he's at a major or whether he's at an exhibition like that, I think as soon as he steps on the course, his competitive nature takes over. And it did again today. And his form, I mean, his his shots gained off the tee today would have been through the roof. Mm. His form off the tee, the, the time between impact of the ball and him picking his tee out of the grass, shortened on every hole. By the 18th, he was barely he was watching his ball. It was phenomenal. That's exciting to see. It's Particularly when you see consider his, you know, his run of form and injury, you know, withdrew from tournaments most recently, the players, which seems like an age ago before this break related to COVID. He looked like there was no such concerns in cold, wet conditions, monsoonally yeah. wet conditions in Florida today. It was very exciting. That's always been a thing that's plagued him too since his his back injuries. Is it takes him longer to warm up in the cold weather, and um, yeah, so it was exciting to see him actually playing some some good golf. And um, yeah, look, as you mentioned, uh, a very good and well run event, uh, much better than the original match. What do we think about match three? Surely, surely, after all we've seen from. The last dance. Surely we find a way to get Michael Jordan involved. You'd have to. You'd have to. I don't know who's on the other side. Maybe it's a Steph Curry. Loves his golf. I think yeah. you know. Now we've had two footballers. Maybe we go to basketball. But MJ, imagine Kelly MJ Slater. And Tiger wow. Or Kelly. He's not a bad option. I just think having MJ involved would be enormous. Maybe that's that's a whole other episode of a podcast. There. <laughs> what's the what's your dream match? Who's your Who's your pro and your sports star that you're putting up? That would be write that, write that down. Yeah, we'll, we'll jot <laughs> that down into our Google Doc of all our podcast ideas. Don't say anymore. We'll spoil it. Yeah. Now, Drews, before um, we we get to the topic of this week's episode, uh, yes. it would be remiss of us uh, to move on without sharing some uh, some sombre and some sad news from the Australian golfing family. Yeah, correct, uh, Marshy. Last week, uh, at the age of eighty-four. Uh, Australian golf lost one of the uh, great entrepreneurs of uh, the Australian golfing landscape, and that was Ray Drummond. 
Um, he was a pro golfer by the age of 17. And then um, in 1955, unfortunately, he had a, a quite a traumatic car crash that left him with um, severe spinal injuries. And, and he didn't really play again until the mid-70s. Um, and, and a friend sort of invited him to play in a comp and, and his passion was revived. And um, in the same year, 1974, he, he opened a store which was called Ray Drummond Golf over in Bendigo. In, uh, in Victoria there um, and then from there Drummond, uh, Drummond Golf as we now know it blossomed and, and by 1990 he had a, a chain of stores throughout Victoria and, and now uh, Drummond Golf has 48 franchise stores uh, across the country and, and employs a hell of a lot of people and um, he was a, a great entrepreneur and a great businessman for, for the sport of golf and uh, yeah it'll be obviously quite disappointing to have I've lost Ray. Uh, he had a great passion for the game and, um, and, and the game's obviously poorer for not having him here. Well said, Drew, is that there are very few people who can lay claim to literally changing the landscape of golf in Australia, um, but the introduction of Drummond Golf uh, certainly did that and, and Ray Drummond is certainly one of those people. So, um, Val, Ray Drummond, we send our condolences to his wife, Denise, and his, to his extended family and, as you say, it is a, leaves, a, leaves a huge hole in the Australian golfing family. That it does. That it does indeed. Now, Drew, moving on to this week's episode, a little bit different. Yes. Uh, we've decided to, what started as a novel idea, a couple of messages exchanged via our WhatsApp group around some content that we could produce across the COVID break to keep things ticking over, um, snowballed, gained a bit of momentum, and it's now turned into its own standalone episode. Uh, tell us a bit more, Drew, sir. Well, uh, I think it's it's only its own standalone episode because of the course that we're going to talk about. If it was any other course, there's probably not a great deal of content that we could have gone with, perhaps the old course. But um, as our listeners and our social media followers would know, we punched out the bracket from golf.com, the top 16 courses in the world, and we randomly pitted them against each other. Um, and Augusta National took out the title uh, with 61% of the vote against the old course at St. Andrews. It was a controversial uh, little exercise that we did, KM. There was a few messages flying in from the public around um, wanting people kicked off the page for for their votes. Um, I I didn't realise that uh, voting for for courses was going to be such a a polarising little exercise for our social media content. Well, Drew, it's in all things that are binary. Uh, there are people who fall one side or the other. And it, to the old course at St Andrew's credit, um, the home of golf, many people consider the spiritual home and, and birthplace of the game and a absolutely wonderful course in its own right. This was, I believe, the closest of any contest throughout the bracket. So 61% of the vote. Um and I think without wanting to put words into our voters' mouths, uh, I think it's the the mythology, it's the mystique, and it's the once-a-year nature of our relationship with Augusta National and the reverence with which it's spoken about and, and in which we hold it that maybe got it across the line. And, and I think tonight what, what we're trying to do, we're not going to walk you holes one through 18 because uh, we've only ever watched it on the television we've never mm. played there we, we never will get the chance to what this is about is maybe taking you behind the scenes and giving you some facts about the course itself and about the facility at augusta national that you know the once a year watcher even the avid golf fan might not know because 
we were talking about this before we started recording. It's obviously a very special place. It's the only major that's played at the same course each year. And that is a result of the course, not of the tournament. Mm. You know, the Masters is synonymous with Augusta National. Augusta National is not synonymous with the Masters. And it's driven by the course. And as we'll find out as we walk through this, it is a, a an absolutely intriguing place. It is. It is, and I think you. There was two words that you mentioned there that that sort of sit with me, and that's mystique and reverence, and and that pretty much sums up Augusta National very well. Um, this is probably going to be a little bit of a longer episode. Uh, we should say that from from <laughs> from up the front. Uh, could be a two parter. Yeah, could not be a two parter. We're not really sure <laughs> because we've added a hell of a lot of notes um, here to go through, but that's because there's so much to unpack. So let's begin uh, in Augusta. Uh, Augusta National, obviously one of the most famous, most exclusive golf clubs in the world. For those who don't know where Augusta is, it's located 230 k east of Atlanta on the border of Georgia and, and South Carolina. So we're in the deep south of the USA. And it's actually closer to Columbia, which is the capital of South Carolina. So a lot of people who uh, access Augusta go through South Carolina. The town itself of Augusta um, isn't overly appealing. Uh, it's called Disguster by a lot of people uh, because it's um, very bland. Washington Road, the main approach to Augusta National, uh, it's got a couple of waffle houses on it. Uh, that's not a euphemism. That's um, that's actually what the place is called. Uh, there are cheap motels uh, all along Washington Road, except for when the masters are on, uh, and there are a lot of churches. Have a look on Google Maps how many churches are on that road. Um, and during the Masters, uh, many Augusta residents actually rent their houses out uh, for exorbitant prices and cover much of their mortgage repayments for, for months, which is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Drew, I think this is one of, the, um, one of the most important and intriguing facts that we'll cover off tonight because obviously the once-a-year watcher of the Masters tournament as far away from the course that you get as the drive down Magnolia Lane in terms of pictures Correct. on the camera. You know, they'll take you down the famous Magnolia Lane. But we never go outside the gates. And so what you see is the epitome of a misrepresentation of the area. Correct. It, it is like, it is literally like Disneyland. It's like walking through the gates and walking into a different world. And, and the juxtaposition of the course to the town is remarkable. Yeah. I think, and that's, and that's, um, and we're going to get into it around the broadcast, but, and uh, which is driven uh, and run by uh, the Augusta National Golf Club. Um, and that would be a directive not to show anything around it. There are golf courses um, just down the road uh, from Augusta National, and they wouldn't want to show any, any other courses that are, that are nearby. They wouldn't want to show anything. But you think about all those other all the other events that are played throughout the year. We've got Winged Foot coming up for the US Open in, in a few months. There's going to be spanning shots of, of broader New York. Um, and there's going to be all of this amazing imagery that goes around. And when we play at Pebble in the Monterey Peninsula, we, we see all these beautiful shots of the ocean. It doesn't exist at Augusta National. They're always very tight, very close, uh, and very um, controlled shots. But um, We'll touch on the broadcast, but I think you're right. It's it's Disneyland. That's where we're going to come back to. One more point before I throw to you for the history uh, and take us through um, how it all came about. It's important to note that Augusta National is a for-profit club 
uh, as as many are not for profit. It does not disclose its income. It doesn't disclose its membership list, although a few people uh, we know of. It doesn't disclose ticket sales or apparel sales, etc. So important to note right from the very front that it is for profit. Um, and KM and, and gonna, lots of it and lots of it. Very, very much lots of it. I would say that their balance sheet has quite a few zeros um, on it. Take us back, KM. Take us back to where it all began with Bobby and Cliff. Yeah, now Drew. So to get a to get an understanding of the the true history of Augusta National, as you say, we must go back to the early nineteen twenties, nineteen twenty three, to be precise, when a twenty one year old by the name of Bobby Jones, one of the most synonymous names with the game of golf, uh, he he started taking the golfing world by storm. At this point, he's the most successful and influential amateur golfer in the history of the game. In the seven year period between 23 and 1930, he won four U.S. Opens, three Open Championships, five U.S. Amateur Championships, and the British Amateur Championship. In 1930, he held the title to all four events, the original and the pre-masters Grand Slam. He was, um, by all measures, the world's best player. Wild. He was uh, unbelievable. And, I mean, when you consider consider the record – of the people we talk about in the greatest player of all time conversations, Bobby Jones is well and truly there. Uh, Absolutely. He was doing at a time when, you know, we're playing with hickory clubs. His travel to um, the, the open championship is most likely by boat. Those sort of things that he was combating to have that sort of record, an incredible player. Was and considering Jones. he wasn't actually a professional golfer, he's an amateur. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it all the more remarkable. Unbelievable. Now, we, we spoke about the... Um, the original and pre-masters Grand Slam. He was so confident he would achieve this feat in 1930 that he actually made a bet with British bookies before the first tournament that he would complete the challenge at odds of 50 to 1. He collected more than $60,000 when he did. And think about what $60,000 would have been in 1930. Yeah, a hell of a lot of money. But also, does 50 to 1 not seem a bit slim? To win four majors in a year, as, as an as an amateur, uh, I think I, the, <laughs> like, bookie, the bookie saw him coming. Let's be let's be honest. Fifty to one is pretty short. I think the record uh, the record spoke, and and the bookies were you know um, risk mitigating at that stage. <laughs> but you're right, fifty to one to win the Grand Slam, incredibly slim odds. After 1930, uh, he, he drew a line underneath what was an incredible career to focus on his law practice back in Atlanta, Georgia, after having enough um, of, I suppose, everything that came with his success. It wasn't the golf that he was necessarily done with. It was everything else that came with how successful a player he was. Hmm. He did, however, have a burning desire to build his own golf course. Not a natural progression for a lot of players, but for a select few. Uh, it exists. It was an idea that resonated with the Wall Street financier by the name of Clifford Roberts. Roberts made a small fortune on a commission in the oil and gas industry in 1921, which allowed him to become a stockbroker on Wall Street, and he eventually became a partner of Reynolds & Co. in the late 1920s. Remarkable, given it was the beginning of the Great Depression. So two names, synonymous with the foundations of Augusta National, Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts. Drew, how did they meet? They had mutual connections in a sleepy inland port town of 
Augusta, Georgia. The Savannah River runs through Augusta into Clarks Hill Lake to the north on the border of Georgia and South Carolina, and to the south it runs through Georgia down to Savannah and into the ocean. The river ensured good soil and nutrients in the surrounding areas, and it was only fitting that given that's where their connection was, that that's where the dream began, Dreadstar. It's, it's quite fascinating uh, just to think about the, the, the period in time um, when they're embarking on this, on this journey of, of opening mm. up a golf course. Um, I, I know that obviously quite wealthy, both of them, uh, you know, um, Bobby Jones off the back of his, his personal success and, and winning the 60 grand and, and Clifford Roberts was, I suppose, um, you know, earned through that commission. But we're talking about a, a time period of the Great Depression where um, people uh, in the thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands are losing their jobs. Um, you know, the economy is really going backwards and you've got these two people that are, I suppose, throwing quite a lot of money in, into a, um, into a, such a big project. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a gamble, but I suppose if Bobby Jones is happy to take some money on himself at 50 to one, he's not, a, he's not opposed to a gamble. He's not immune to, to, to a punt, but Drew, so I think it's a great point you make, particularly when we know now um, in 2020, the extent of what's involved from a resources, a manpower, and a an, an cost of building a golf mm. course. Mm. So rewind back to the end of the 20s and the beginning of the Great Depression and to make that sort of investment in a place, as we say now, that is pretty nondescript. Nothing mm. special about Augusta, Georgia. And to have the dream and the vision to turn it into what is now uh, arguably the greatest golf course in the world. It's two men with, with, a, with a great vision. Um, checkered uh, personal lives, <laughs> particularly Mr. Roberts, but two men with vision. Absolutely. It's, it, we move to the property. Um, and now I suppose a lot of people are asking why Augusta, um, obviously both, uh, Jones and Roberts, um, uh, have ties to, to Georgia. Um, but it was actually the climate and the all round good weather, um, that, that generally exists for most of the year in Augusta national that, that drew, uh, Jones and Roberts to Augusta. Augusta already had a golf club, which still exists to the day. I was mentioning it before. It's the Augusta Country Club. It looks absolutely nothing like it's 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 mate down the road. I'll give you the hot tip. Um, but it was a great Augusta, a great place for winter golf. Um, and and Bobby Jones had actually won the Southeastern Open at Augusta Country Club, so he knew the area quite well. Um, and he'd had this piece of uh, uh, this property in mind that he'd seen which was adjoining the Augusta Country Club. And it was owned by a Belgian man by the name of Baron Louis Berkmans. Now, this was known as Fruitlands Nursery, and it was an indigo plantation, and then it turned into a plant nursery. We should also note that there is no real one source of truth for the history of Augusta National. There's a lot of history um, on the Masters, which we found in our research, Marcy, Marcy, but there's not a lot about Augusta National itself. So... If you hear, I remember when we were setting out on this task. I remember asking you, um, surely, surely Augusta National has a history section on their website, to which you inform me Augusta National doesn't have a website. Mm. Which the Masters, I think, better than anything else, uh, sums up Augusta National. Yeah, the fact they don't have a website. Yeah, it's it's almost like the secret, the secrets that are inside our four gates aren't going to be put anywhere else. Um, 
so the, the information that we're dealing with here is is obviously passed down through, through many generations, um, which is why uh, coming back to the size of the property, it really depends on on where you read. And um, I read 345 acres, 365, 400 acres. Um, no one could give me a definitive answer on this. So um, we'll roll with somewhere between 345 and 400 acres is the size of um, the property that, that Bobby Jones ended up buying. So there was a house on, uh, on site, which was built in 1854 by Dennis Redmond. Uh, and between 1858 and 1859, the Berkmans family planted a number of magnolia trees to line the driveway from seed. This would obviously later become known as Magnolia Lane. In also, I'm assuming looked nothing like it does now when no. they originally planted the trees. <laughs> no, wouldn't have thought so. In 1931, the Great Depression, D- Depression was gripping the US, as we mentioned, and the world more broadly. Um, however, it was during this year that Jones and Roberts visited the 400-acre property um, and they instantly knew that this was the site for the golf course and, and Jones described, uh, and I'll quote this here, the long lane of magnolias through which we approached was beautiful. The old manor house with its cupola and walls of masonry, two feet thick, was charming. The rare trees and shrubs of the old nursery were enchanting. But when I walked out onto the grass terrace under the big trees behind the house and looked down over the property, the experience was unforgettable. It seemed that this land had been lying here for many years, waiting for someone to lay a golf course upon it. The broad expanse of the main body of the property lay at my feet then just as it does now. It looked as though it was already a golf course, end quote. So Bobby's obviously in love with this place. He's yeah. like, he knows that this is where the course is going, and I'm sure Clifford Roberts uh, felt the same. We circle back to uh, 1929, uh, and I popped a note here, uh, a la Michael Jordan doco chronology. <laughs> chronology. Um, <laughs> that's just a side note. Um, it's all part it, of storytelling. It was all over the place, wasn't it? Just as a side note? Oh, really it I enjoyed it. it. I, I know it was a point of contention for many viewers, but I think in terms of rounding out the story and providing context, brilliant work. I was on board. hundred uh, percent. Loved it. Anyway, that's our short, uh, short, <laughs> short summation of the <laughs> 10 last out of dance. 10 for the last dance. <laughs> uh, Jones was knocked out in, in 1929, uh, not physically. He was knocked out in the first round of the U.S. Amateur Championship at Pebble Beach. Uh, he decided to hang around the Monterey Peninsula for the, ma- the remainder of the week. And as he was actually, as you, as you do, when you're the, the best player in the world at the time. And he was actually invited to play the not yet opened Cypress Point. And it was there that he met a man by the name of Dr. Alistair McKenzie. And they spent time together and shared a design philosophy as they were uh, spending time in California. So circling back to 1931, when Bobby Jones was at Fruitland's nursery, standing there, knew that this was going to be a golf course, he thought back to Dr. McKenzie. And in 1931, the dream was officially born. The world's greatest golfer teamed up with the world's greatest architect and a financier, and the Augusta National Golf Club sprung to life. So it all happened quite quickly uh, from, I suppose, Jones finishing up his career. You know, he was still in his 20s. Uh, He was at the, the height of his career in many ways in 1930. Um, called it quits after after winning the Grand Slam, and and less than a year later, the plans were in motion to get Augusta National off the floor. Do you know it's it's isn't it funny? Uh, I, I suppose the permutations of of fate, uh, the decision having been knocked out of the nineteen twenty nine US Amateur mm. to stay on at Monterey Peninsula for for Bobby Jones for a week, mm. and the invitation 
to play at a unopened Cypress Point mm. and the chance meeting with Dr. Alistair McKenzie because in reality, Druids, there were uh, no shortage of fantastic architects around this time no. building courses, particularly over in uh, the UK and Ireland, building outstanding courses. It didn't have to be Alistair McKenzie. Uh, we will get into the relationship in a moment, but the the ripple effect of small bits of fate uh, that that allowed that chance meeting has an unbelievably large impact on the finished product. Because if this this is not the same course if it's designed by someone else, this is in so many different ways an Alistair McKenzie course, and yeah. and that to me. Um, I feel like I'm going to read myself a lot of times tonight, but that's one of the most fascinating things about this story, I think, is is what led to that chance meeting, which resulted in Alistair McKenzie being the architect for this golf course. Yeah, it's fascinating because if they meet um, and they don't have the same design philosophy or the same out, right. outlook on golf course design, McKenzie doesn't design Augusta National. And, and that's not to say that the course... Um, you know, would have ended up any any differently, or, or you know, who knows what it, what it could have ended up up like. And I think that's your your point of fate. But it's it's the the the, the events that happened of him getting knocked out of the US Amateur at the point of at one of the heights of his career in the first round, and he's gone. I'm going to hang around. I'm going to play in the Monterey Peninsula. I'm going to play the unopened Cypress Point. I meet Mackenzie, and then two years later, here he is designing. Um, what was to become one of the best golf courses in the world. So we moved to the design and construction phase. Uh, Mackenzie and Jones as a partnership wanted to create the ideal inland course at Augusta. That was the goal. By this time, um, Mackenzie had worked on an enormous number of projects already, uh, including, how's this for a list, Royal Adelaide, Royal Melbourne, La Hinch's old course, Cypress Point, and Crystal Downs, just to name a few. The list is incredibly long, as long as your arm, but as, as a hit list, that's not, that's not a bad couple of clubs to have completed prior to 1931. I actually didn't know that he'd worked on Lee Hinch's old course before doing this. Yeah. I, don't know, I just, I didn't know who I thought designed Lee Hinch. It's one of, it is one of, if not in my top five courses that I want to play. Um, but yeah, I just didn't realize that Mackenzie had touched that one. It's one of um, the many factors which made my uh, disappointment yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have brought up La Hinch. Larger when the trip to the planned trip to Ireland and round at La Hinch were subsequently cancelled. My apologies, I'll repeat it. Anyway, moving on, uh, Jones himself played a large role in the design of the course, which, ironically for architects, isn't always a welcome interruption. However, for Mackenzie, uh, in his own words, was a big part of the reason why the course ended up the way that it did. In a diary entry, Mackenzie wrote, if, as I firmly believe, the course does become the world's wonder inland course, it will be due in a large part to the original ideas contributed by Bob. So, Mackenzie and Jones agreed on four main principles and tier point druids. Um, if in that original conversation, philosophy um, was not mirrored, then this would have gone no further, but they agreed on four main principles in design. One, a really great course must be a constant source of pleasure for the greatest number of players. It's something you always hear architects talk about. Mm. The great courses 
shorten the gap between high and low handicap players. They provide opportunities for low handicap players, but they don't exclude high handicap players. And that's what they're talking about here. Constant source of pleasure for the greatest number of players. Point number two, it must require strategy in the playing as well as skill. Otherwise, it cannot continue to hold the golfer's interest. Point number three, it must give the average player a fair chance. And at the same time, it must require the utmost from the expert who tries for subpar scores. And finally, all natural beauty should be preserved. Natural hazards should be utilised and artificially should be minimised. Which I think that last point, um, in some ways ironic, given what we'll get to later, about yeah. how much is shipped in and artificial. Mm. But as a starting point, it's the many reasons why we love and have spoken in great length on this podcast about courses like Arrowtown in Queenstown, New Zealand, or Binning Up in yeah. the, the Margaret River region in Western Australia. It's, it's a course that weaved through natural settings, not a course that cleared everything and built from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting design principle. And I think... Like the the point before those those um, parts that that extract from Mackenzie's diary entry, where he said, "As I firmly believe the course does become the world's wonder inland course." So in 1930, he's already knowing. He already knows that this is going to be one of the best courses, and and I can't imagine I I've, I've never met Mackenzie in my life, and I've not done a, you know, I've I've done plenty of research on him, but I don't know his. Um, you know, the way that he spoke about all of his courses, but I can't imagine that's something that he threw around quite loosely. No. I imagine that that's something that he genuinely believed. And that was, I suppose, showed the, the respect and the uh, partnership between Jones and, and McKenzie. Well, you only have to look at his work, right? He's, he's obviously a man of meticulous standards. So to set apart this course and I suppose foresee it as the world's wonder inland course while still in the process of building it. That's yeah. That that in and of itself shows you the confidence he had in the land that he's working on. Sidebar: um, Alistair McKenzie is quickly rocketing up my list of people dead or alive you'd have at a dinner party. Um, (laughs) That's only golfers, though. I'd sit him right next to me because I'd chew his ear off. Uh, Talk, Mackenzie. Yeah, people can go about their business around the table, but he's rocketing up the list as as Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Anyway, we digress. Um, That's another podcast episode. I'll write it down. Write it down. Content. Who would you have at your dinner table? Hashtag content. Mackenzie (laughs) also noted that the land they were working with was a big contributor to the success of the course. As I mentioned, the confidence he had in the property, he noted the tall trees, shrubbery, streams, rolling hills, and rich soil. He also noted, and I think this is an interesting point, Baron Berkman's passion and care for the property. So they didn't inherit Druids. They didn't inherit a goat track. Mm. They inherited a piece of property that had been cared for and loved by its previous owner, which I think in no small part contributed to um, how quickly it was such a quality course. Yeah, I agree. Mackenzie was not only fascinated by the land upon which the course was being built, he was also fascinated by the magnolia trees which lined the driveway, uh, which would, as we've said, later become known as the famous Magnolia Lane. He debunked a number of comments that he and Jones were simply trying to copy a number of the world's great golf holes. He said this would end in 
failure, which of course, uh, one of his, you know, you obviously you have template holes, but to yeah. lift and shift a hole from another course uh, never works. Um, and he was obviously a firm believer in designing per the property uh, rather than per previous success. They wanted to produce 18 ideal holes, ones that would become known as classics themselves using the land they were given. Tick. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you start rattling off a couple of the holes there that are amongst the world's great holes. It's. I think that was successful in their goal. Mackenzie knew it was going to be a tough golf course, but commended Americans for understanding the strategy of golf holes better than what those in England and Scotland did. It's an interesting point because there are obviously particularly links courses um, that require an awful lot of strategy. We mentioned the course that this um, that Augusta National beat out in the final, the old course at St Andrews. You talk to people who've played there and it plays differently. You could play it 10 times and it plays differently 10 times. Mm. You know, the unique um, undulations in the terrain on each hole. So it's interesting his comment that he felt Americans appreciated the strategy more so than players in England and Scotland. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a interesting. It's interesting when you start to do a lot of research on on Mackenzie's plans for Augusta National, where he talks about um, where he talks about designing each of the individual holes. And I tweeted I tweeted an article a little while back um, that kind of rattled through it, and we've obviously taken a lot of information from that article to to this podcast, but. Um, you, you know, where he was talking about uh, where people were saying, oh, you were just trying to, 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 you know, pick up holes and move them to Augusta National from around the world. Um, and he obviously made that comment, as you mentioned, that, that that's not what we were trying to do. They obviously use a lot of templates um, from different holes. And in that article, he actually references a lot of the, um, a lot of the templates that he's actually uh, taken from. For example, on, on hole number four, uh, which is flowering crab apple, uh, it's a very similar hole to the, which, which we'll get to the names at some point. Um, it's a very similar hole to the famous eleventh, uh, the Eden at St Andrews. So they, they've certainly taken um, ideas uh, for from a number of great courses, predominantly St Andrews, uh, and used them as as templates. But they certainly didn't pick it up and um, and just transport it to Augusta. These next two points, <laughs> I I had a good chuckle at. Uh, very interesting, but but ironic in many yeah. in many ways. Uh, Mackenzie noted that he didn't want people to lose golf balls or have to search, and he wanted it to be quick and relatively short course. There aren't many things at which he failed at Augusta National Roots, but if that was a goal, uh, unfortunately, I'd have to put a cross next to it for the, the doctor. <laughs> yeah. He also designed 19 holes. The 19th, uh, obviously our favourite, was a 90-yard hole, a 90-yard hole that was, so that those who were playing for money could go double or nothing. Brilliant. And I absolutely love that. I'm very here for that. I love it. It's so good. I think just one, one point on on him wanting it to, to be a relatively short course. And, and I suppose Augusta's not uh, incredibly long by a lot of standards, but they've obviously taken the time to lengthen it over the years. Mm. Um, we'll get to, to points about, around lengthening um, the course. Obviously we saw uh, late last year, there was, you know, photos from Google. I think it was from Google earth where they were buying land behind the 13th. 13th I think, yeah. yeah. And 
you know, they talk about, and then that's obviously to lengthen the course, which, which kind of intrigues me without getting too deep. If it goes against the, the philosophy that Mackenzie wanted for the course, obviously mm. he wanted it to be, um, you know, relatively quick and, and short, but I suppose he's, he's not a, um, he's not a, a, a mind reader of, of the future and, and he can't tell what's going to happen. Uh, and this day and age of, you know, people being able to bomb a ball 300 yards and, and have wedge into every hole. Um, but it's just funny. It's interesting that that's often and, and probably where a lot of our golf courses are going, including some of the best in the world, like Augusta national, they're actually looking at lengthening and, and going against what the designer wanted. But Drew, it's not only does it contradict the, the philosophy and, and the theories of the man who designed it in many respects it contradicts the ethos of augusta national itself Mm. uh, a place that is so steeped in tradition and history and stubbornly holds on to its old-fashioned values Mm. to actually adapt and lengthen the course um seems to grind against that right it's 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 interesting the journey that they're currently on because in so many other ways they religiously hold on to the past yeah yeah whereas in terms of the course itself they seem willing to adapt yeah it's it's fascinating and we'll get a couple to the more points power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple more points on the the design and construction mackenzie noted the green should be of generous proportions and that there should be relatively few sand traps as the natural land provides enough hazards tick um and I mean, the greens themselves, you talk to anyone who's played there, um, the coverage that we see on television uh, doesn't go close to doing it justice in terms mm. of the change in elevation, in terms of the slant, in terms of the way the ball runs. It's Those greens are amongst the most difficult in the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and that put to one side the challenges of the natural hazards along the fairways. The greens themselves are a great separator. And a great leveler at Augusta National. And so Drew's construction begins uh, a relatively quick and incredibly impressive process when you consider um, the time, the Great Depression, and also the land that was required to be cleared. It was completed in around a year, uh, which just wouldn't happen in 2020. Which is remarkable given the technology. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's what I mean. <laughs> And just the manpower, like it's you, the land that would take, you know, 20, 30 men to clear is done by a machine now. And yeah. still, you wouldn't have courses completed in around a year. Incredible. No, got to have a break, mate. <laughs> a couple of hours a day. Load, load. <laughs> Inside joke for anyone that's, that's just wondering what that is. Anyway, we, 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 move, <laughs> we move on. Compose uh, yourself. Yes, complaints. Uh, so we move on. The, the construction begins, takes about a year. And in that time, Clifford Roberts is named the inaugural chairman of the Augusta National Golf Club. The Great Depression is in full swing uh, by the time the course opens in 1932. And early on, the course really struggled to get members. Bobby Jones really couldn't recruit very highly. Um, and this was, I suppose, partly due to its, its remote location. Obviously, we spoke about Augusta National not being... Um, very close to anything, particularly in those days. It also had a relatively large, uh, sorry, a relatively small population um, for for the era, which was also largely black. It's an important point that we'll get to in in um, in a couple of topics time. 
Mackenzie passed away shortly after the course opened and he actually never saw a Masters. To cope with the, uh, I suppose, dwindling membership, you know, Bobby Jones only had a handful of, um, of members uh, by the time uh, 1934 rolled around. Uh, Roberts and Jones held the first Augusta National Invitation on the 22nd of March, 1934. Horton Smith won the event and the $1,500 prize that went, win it, went with it. And this continued for the next five years until the name, the Masters, was adopted in 1939. It's said, uh, and I'm sure this is probably true, it's said that Bobby Jones was actually against the name, the Masters, uh, in its initial phase. Um, as we mentioned at the top, we're talking more about the course rather than the event itself, the Masters. Um, but we are going to digress for just a moment to, to indulge in um, probably one of the biggest um, events or definitely the biggest event on the US mainland uh, in golf each year. Um, it's not known when the Masters became one of the majors. Um, it's said that it was in the 1960 season, which was dominated by the great man Arnold Palmer. The king. The king. Until 1934, interesting, I found this really interesting actually, until 1935, sorry, the course was played the other way. So you teed off on what is now hole number 10 um, and played 10 through 18. And then um, as we know them, uh, it was the front nine. And then that was reversed in 1935. It's fascinating to think about how the course would play uh, if it was inversed. Which is wild, right? Because you're going, that means you're going through amen corner in your first five holes year round. Yeah, I love crazy. it. How good would that be? That is absolutely crazy. You wouldn't be able to do it now. Anyway, um, it, it, it's, it's also said that the Masters came about because Jones wanted to host the US Open at Augusta National, but the USGA declined uh, and said that the hot summer would create poor playing conditions. So the USGA really butchered uh, typical, their typical vision uh, <laughs> displayed by the USGA. So, so anyway, the uh, the Masters continued uh, up until World War Two uh, kicks off, and the Masters were not played between 1943 and 1945. And to assist with the war effort, even Augusta National got their hands dirty. The uh, the course actually turned into a farm. Uh, cattle and turkeys were raised on the grounds of Augusta National. Now, I don't know if you can picture that in your head, Cam, or any of our listeners, no, um, but can you imagine the cattle just rolling around on the greens of number 12 um, or anywhere through Amen Corner on, on the 18th green? It's, it's hard, to, hard to understand. I'd love to see what it looked like when they left. Yeah, that's, uh, that's goat track. Dressing mentioned thought. it before. Goat track. Dressing thought. Uh, in 1937, just a couple of very brief uh, important moments in Masters histories. Uh, in 1937, a man by the name of Byron Nelson won the first of his two Masters. The other came in 1942. In 1948, a really uh, important and, and probably turning point uh, for the Augusta National Golf Club as it claimed its first big scalp as a member by... Uh, a man by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, he visited and he joined as a member and he eventually hired Clifford Roberts as his executor and, and financial advisor uh, and Roberts repaid the favour by having a house constructed for Eisenhower on the grounds. During his presidency, uh, Eisenhower visited Augusta 29 times. 1975 was a pretty monumental moment for the Masters with Lee Elder teeing it up for the first time. Elder was the first African-American to play in the Masters, um, which was a, a really important moment for the, the tournament. 
really important moment for Augusta National Golf Club and we will uh, certainly touch on, uh, I suppose, the, the racial history behind Augusta National in a couple of moments time. Um, I'm going to hand back to you, KM, to take us through our next topic, um, which is around the facilities, which is <laughs> probably the lengthiest part. Yeah, I think as well, Drew, just before we move on, I mean, as, you, as we said a number of times, tonight's more about the course than the tournament itself, but when we speak about important Masters moments, and, and I think it's relevant when you speak about Lee Elder being the first African-American to tear it up in 1975, the only one I'd add to that list, um, and for reasons that will become clear when we get to uh, the not-so-glamorous side of Augusta National a little later in the podcast, is 1997. Mm-hmm. Tiger. When Tiger Woods won his first by um, a record 12 strokes. Mm. Uh, and as I said, it will become clearer why both Lee Elder's tournament in 1975 and that win by Tiger in 1997 uh, were monumental really, in the history of Augusta when we speak about um, the the not-so-glamorous side of the club. But I just wanted to add that one in 1997. Yeah. Tiger winning his first by record, 12 strokes. Now, the facilities, as you mentioned, um, buckle up because this is... Uh, <laughs> this is the juicy stuff. This is wild. So, yeah. as we know and as we see uh, each and every April uh, this year, November, Augusta National is impeccably maintained to within an inch of itself the pine straw that you see is imported the bird sounds are imported you heard that correctly these are not uh, native birds of augusta national they are sounds played through speakers that are well hidden in the course in the year 2000 cbs pumped up the volume and added their own but one astute listener called them out noting the bird noise was produced from a bird not near the area. I mean, sidebar. It's the most CBS thing that could happen. It is. That's, that's, that's so on brand from CBS. <laughs> but sidebar, how's that, how's that viewer knowing the call sign of a bird and knowing that it's not native of the Augusta? Actually, it floats your boat, mate. Maybe a little more golf, um, yeah. a little, little less birds. Well, uh, and the ponds at Augusta National were once dyed blue. The bunkers are not filled with sand. How's this? Yeah, this blew but, me away. But with material from feldspar mines in North Carolina. So Crazy. not sand. It is the, the ground down material from feldspar mines in North Carolina. All of this gives you, I suppose, context of the effort and the importance that the club places on aesthetics. Mm. Mm. So they have their secret membership, Drew, as we say, they don't disclose their members list. They have people that play there, not 361 other days a year because it's closed for a couple of months for restoration works Mm -hmm. um, each year, but we see it for four days a year and make no mistake, it looks no better at any other point of the year than those four days. Correct. Because the aesthetics is so important to the committee and those sorts of things, you know, imported bird sounds through speakers, not sand in bunkers, but ground material from feldspar mines, ponds that are dyed. Like, it's crazy the lengths I go to to get this right. 
Mm. And that's just, uh, that's just, um, uh, uh, that's just Augusta national. Um, you know, you spoke about the Disneyland side of things at the start and for anyone who's been to Disneyland knows how um, impeccable that place is, but yeah, the, uh, it, it's funny when you, you actually have to just stop and take a step back to think about how crazy this stuff is that the looks and presentation of this course for four days a year. And, and it looks fantastic for the, for the other days as well. Let's not get that wrong, but for these four days of the year that it is on show to the world, um, the aesthetics are so much more important to uh, the committee at Augusta national than anything else. The course also has a system called sub air. It's one word sub air, which is an underground irrigation system used to keep the ground firm and fast. It's one of the, one of the most famous characteristics of the course firm and fast. Um, And it's down to, the use of sub air, the underground irrigation system, which as it turns out is also in play at Pebble beach. Now visitors druids are not known as visitors. You are a patron of the club. No, this one is one of the most famous conditions on patrons and still to this day exists blows my mind. No mobile phones are permitted anywhere except the press building and there are spot checks performed. No mobile, the siren you can hear in the background shows you how criminal that is in 2020. No mobile phones. You literally cannot take a mobile phone onto the property as a visitor. Sorry, it's a patron. Wild. It's wild. And, and it's true. Like if you look at photos of masters gone by, um, where you can see the gallery, there is not one person holding up a phone and it's quite, it's quite interesting. But again, it's, it's Augusta nationals control um, of, of the information that goes out about the club. Um, And that I can't imagine, I can't come up with another conceivable reason as to why they would do that. If they, um, you know, if it wasn't to control the message and control Control the, the yeah, control what was going out of the club. Democratic Republic of Augusta National. It's exactly uh, what it is. <laughs> you laugh, but it is. Propaganda machine. But that that in and of itself, I think, as you say, is is such a clear definition of what they're all about. Um, in many respects, as you say, uh, you know, you, you always see those side-by-side photos of galleries at Augusta compared to galleries of PGA tournaments and everyone's got their phone up taking a photo. And, and in many respects, it's probably a positive. But, you know, to, to see things like if you if you aren't at a part of the course that has a scoreboard and, and you know, they're pitted in different parts of the course, the manual scoreboards that are changed by the staff. But if you're not near one of those, you literally have no way of knowing, like mm. you're following your group and obviously they have the board that follows them that tells the score of the three players in the group, but you literally have no way of knowing what influence or change in in the broader leaderboard is happening unless, um, as was the case uh, last year, when Tiger started to make his move, every time there was a manual change, there'd be cheers that would ring out across the course. Mm. So you might be in a corner of the course with no access to a a scoreboard. You'd hear all of a sudden a cheer and you knew probably something was happening with Tiger or another player because that's the only indication you have of a change. Score like that sort of stuff is is testament to Augusta's desire to remain 
back in, back in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Crazy stuff. It is. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of crazy, there's no running or loud talking and certainly no cheering when a player makes a mistake. You couldn't hold a Ryder Cup there. Anyone breaking the rules comes under the punishment of security guards, um, permanently banned, prosecuted even if possible, depending on the egregious nature of the crime. Um, in 2012, a patron took a cup of bunker sand, uh, as we know, not sand, uh, ground material from Felsbar Mines, and was thrown in jail. Baffling. Baffling. <laughs> a, cup, a cup of Feldspar mined ground material and spent some time in the clinker as a result. The security, uh, sorry, just the security guards are also from, um, the company doesn't exist anymore. They're now bought out by someone else. But Pinkerton, it was like they're world famous security guard company that, um, you know, were, were only employed for very special events and, and sort of almost an unofficial secret service. I was going to um, say, like special forces guys. Yeah, yeah, like all that sort of stuff. Um, and so uh, that's that's how much Augusta National values their, their privacy. A couple of jacked up Navy SEALs looking for a problem. Yeah. Um, now, one of the most famous parts of the course uh, is not a hole. Uh, it is, of course, Butler Cabin. Uh, the most famous of the houses on the property, Augusta National. This is where the green jacket is presented um, in uh, what remains one of the most awkward presentation ceremonies in any sport anywhere in the world. Um, last year's champion, uh, this year's champion, the the like terribly uncomfortable amateur sitting in the corner. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Jim Nance with the chairman. That's so um, weird. Weird. So, so weird. Uh, it dates back to 1850s, one of the original and obviously the most famous house on the property. Berkman's place is equally as famous, operates for one week per year during the Masters. There are only 10 tickets and they go for 10K each. For that, you get full access to the five restaurants at Berkman's Place, obviously named after the original owners of the property from whom Bobby Jones purchased the land. Next to Berkman's are replicas of the 7th, 14th and 16th greens with caddies there to give people the chance to test their putting. That is sick. That interested me because... There's no activation zone. Like, you know, we talk about sport being an entertainment <laughs> product. Where's the activation zone? Can't just go down and jump on the track, man. Yeah, but they don't have that, right? It's because because you don't need it. But then they, they kind of like tease people a little bit with these three greens, that, um, you know, that people can go and test their putting. Like the article that I was reading the year that, they, um, that this guy was there, I think it was 2019 actually, um, he, he walked up to um, Condoleezza Rice was the person greeting the greeting each individual patient that was coming through testing their putting. Of course she was. That's unbelievable. Crazy. Now Augusta national Drudes, um, and this to me is laughable has never been officially rated USGA. Uh, and, and I'll repeat. So you know where to attribute blame USGA raters did attend on behalf of golf digest and gave it a rating of 76.2, which was Crazy. subsequently upgraded to 78.1 in 2009. Um, as with many, many other things, 
<laughs> those employees of the USGA need their head read, I think. Truths. 78.1 is our standing rating for Augusta National Golf Club. Definitely. Uh, of course, there has been plenty of tweaking to the facilities over the years to adapt to modern times. We've seen extra land purchase, as we mentioned in recent years, but one of the major changes uh, actually occurred in 1937 on the 10th hole when uh, architect Perry Maxwell moved the green back around 50 yards to the top of the hill, which is where it has remained to this day. It's one of the single strokes of genius on the course. It's interesting that you know, in the course had only been open for five years and they were already ready to tweak it mm. considering yeah. all the work that went into it. And considering how close to Alistair McKenzie's death that yeah. was. Mm. Um, fascinating. But, you know, as, as we said, um, you know, adding that length to the 10th and moving on to the top of the hill um, changes the entire complexion of that hole uh, and and is well and aptly described as a stroke of genius. Um, now we now we get to the good stuff, the juicy stuff, Dreads. The second shot of the 11th, the entire 12th hole, and the first two shots of the 13th are famously known as Amen Corner. Author Herbert Warren Wind, what a name, Herbert Warren Wind first coined the term in 1958. It has made or broken... Uh, far too many rounds to count in the history of uh, the Masters, specifically in 1937. Byron Nelson went birdie eagle on 12 and 13, eagled the 13th to set up his win. Arnold Palmer in 58 made a number of incredible saves in Amen Corner. And Sam Sneed's water save in 1949 on hole 12 sparked his victory. Jordan Spieth, Flair Jordan, my boy, uh, unfortunately, uh, suffered the other end. He suffered the broken side with a quadruple bogey on 12 in 2016, which subsequently lost him the title. And you only have to, Druids, cast your mind back to 2019. It was 12 where the wheels really started to come off for Francesco Molinari, mm. who was, of course, the leader uh, in the final round. Um, fell short of the green, rolled back down into the water on 12. Mm. And one of, if not, I mean, I, I think the best image from last year is Tiger embracing his children. Yeah. But the second best may well be Francesco Molinari in the drop zone mm. on the tee box side of the water and Tiger waiting up on the green. Yeah. Come on, son. Let's get going. (laughs) Such a flex. It's, it's, um, uh, there's also, um, so the, the, the term was coined obviously by, um, by wind back in, in 58, as you mentioned, Herbert Warren wind, Herbert Warren wind, the big H H dub dub as I believe they called him, Mm. um, back in 1958. Um, and it was around, uh, you know, there's, there's similar sort of terms in, in American football and baseball. And he thought that golf needed to have something, um, you know, that coined uh, quite a difficult area or, um, you know, an area that would define a match or define a result. So that's, um, yeah, he, he's just old Herbie has just come up with whatever the hell he wanted and has coined one of the most famous, probably one of the most famous golfing terms in golf. He's and just said, this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be called and um, deal with it. And there are an awful lot of excellent 
patches of that golf course. Mm. Um, I love um, 15, 16. I love 15, 16. Mm. But honestly, uh, Amen Corner for me, um, I said this a couple of episodes ago when we spoke to Nick Ahern. If I could sit anywhere as a as a patron, not a visitor, as a patron at Augusta National, it would be on the tee box at 13. Mm. The quietest place on the course. Um, and I, I think the way that Mackenzie routed uh, that specific section of the course, uh, genius, absolute mm. genius. Mm. But we digress. The podcast is not about Amen Corner. It's about the course itself so <laughs> moving right along um if you're still with us congratulations excellent work the eisenhower tree um of course named after the the big fish the white whale member as you said dwight d uh, was the most famous tree on the course it was aptly named after president eisenhower himself who wanted the tree removed as it interfered with his golf game um <laughs> When the president speaks, you say, uh, you say, yes, sir. But, no, but they didn't. I love the fact that they didn't. 100%. They went, we're just going to, no, we're going to keep this here. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. President. Sorry about that. Um, I serve the pleasure of the president unless I'm Augusta National. <laughs> yeah. Do what I want. Um, in 2014, uh, it was uh, subsequently removed after extensive damage from an ice storm, potentially ordered by the ghost of Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they aren't they aren't um, they aren't opposed to removing but also planting new trees at mm. Augusta National. Love mm. it. Love a tree. Love a love a thin um, thin gate off a tea box with plenty of trees. I yeah. love it. I love the tea. Uh, like I was going to get when we get to the the end of this. I was going to say what's your favourite hole in the course, but it's too hard to I think to possibly pick one. But yeah. I love hole number eighteen. The T the T shot from eighteen is yeah is sensational. Just through that like narrow opening, uh, is is awesome. And 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 partially blind, really. Yeah. You think about like yeah, that, that there's too many to pick. That's why I wasn't gonna I probably wasn't gonna ask you the question. I think that is why I prefer where would I park myself mm. rather than trying to pick you know, comparing full holes against full holes. If I could pick mm. one spot to park myself, where would I go? Mm. Um, I think that's somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat of an easier question to answer. Mm. Um, still on the facilities, uh, Ike's Pond was also named after uh, Dwight, President Eisenhower, who was walking through the woods and noted a good place to build a dam to fish in. Um, he's got his fingerprints all over this joint. Does he does. Yeah. Um, it was built just as Eisenhower mentioned. Um, Roberts, being Cliff, um, would later, uh, uh, quite sadly, um, take his own life next to the pond on September 29, 1977. So the first chairman also ended his, his life at Augusta National. Um Ray's Creek cuts across the southeastern corner of the property, working through Amen Corner. It is the lowest point of elevation on the course. The creek was named after former owner John Ray, who died in 1798. And Roodster, rounding out the facilities section, the media centre. <laughs> Wowie. Said yeah. to be the best in sports anywhere on the earth. 
made-to-order food, a restaurant, TV, and radio studios, and a locker room with bathrooms and attendants. Workstations have brass nameplates, leather chairs, and an unbelievable amount of technology. Of course, RFID chips exist on each media person's accreditation, so we don't have any sneaky sneakies. Yeah. But from a media standpoint, there's a better place to go. That's right. And the the chips ensure that um, that the the club can see where and uh, where any media is at any given point in time. Uh, it's it's all about control. Yet again, um, you know, I'm I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, a little bit later when we get to the uh, odd things and interesting facts section uh, that I've actually named um, around, you know, who can and can't talk. And I think all that stuff that you've just spoken around, the, the, the facilities, and it's funny because we're talking about the facilities, but it's still all about control for Augusta National. All about control. 100%. They don't do anything that's not calculated or doesn't serve a purpose. Um, there, there's no missteps or mistakes. It, it is all part of a larger plan. 